Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think they were like very close with each other. They were like best friends. And I think he must have, like, been super upset about Austin. And Austin probably told him his side and maybe sounded like it wasn't his fault. I think Matthew got super pissed off going over there and did it out of revenge. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. I cannot believe we're at the end of September. It's almost October. Where the hell has this year gone? What the hell? I don't know. I feel like I did nothing all summer. I just like hid from the heat and that's it. And now we're like smack dab in the middle of fall. I am excited for changing of leaves and all that fun stuff. I love this time of year. There's so much fun stuff to do. So I'm excited. We'll make the most of it. Yes. Well, it is September 21st. And you know, want to know what kind of day we have going on? I sure do. So it is National Chai Day, which I love. I love a good chai tea latte. A nice okay. little a little shot in there, you know? Yeah, with a little um, pumpkin spice in there or something. That is, you know what? Somebody posted on Instagram that their go-to at Starbucks is a chai tea latte with a pump of pumpkin spice in it. Interesting. And that sounds so good. Somebody try it out and let us know. I know. Let me know. There, it's also National Pecan Cookie Day and uh, Telegraph Pole Appreciation Day. I'm on a different website because Check Eye Day wasn't working. So we've got some other weird things going on. It's also World Mini Golf Day and Bill Murray's birthday. Bill Murray's birthday and World Mini Golf Day, I think, are the winners for me. That is definitely the winners. Oh, what a good day. I love Bill Murray. I want him Same. to officiate my wedding. That's the Anything. only person I'd kick you out of there for is That's Bill fair. Murray. And I would forgive you. Absolutely. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. The bond between siblings is incredibly special. From the time you're born, you have a built-in best friend, even if it doesn't feel like it all the time. 
You go through so much together, conflicts at school, spats with friends, and unpacking your own family trauma. It can feel like it's you and your brother or sister against the whole world. And no matter what, they will always be by your side and understand you. And if you're lucky, they're right there and ready to support you, love you, and help you when you need it the most. And your sibling's success is your success. Their joy is your joy, but your pain is also their pain. So what happens when one sibling's pain destroys everything, their entire life? Where does that leave the sibling left behind? Well, that is exactly what we'll be exploring in today's episode. And today's case takes us back to the fall of 2021. So this is only a year ago, but we're going to take a quick jog down memory lane so we can kind of set the mood for the time. So Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You and Deja Vu were rocking your TikTok feeds, and they were also topping the billboards along with Lizzo's About Damn Time, which is still kind of popular now, which is crazy. Totally. I guess the dance didn't become popular until after it was like top of the charts. Songs have their moments now when they become like TikTok songs. Exactly. And I feel like that that just started really like circulating. So Marvel had its grip on the movie box offices with hits like Black Widow and Shang Chai and The Legend of the Ten Rings. And the Free Britney movement came to a head when after 13 years, a judge decided to end the conservatorship, controlling Britney Spears, who was 39 years old at the time. And the setting for today's case is primarily Ackworth, Georgia. Even though Ackworth is only an hour's drive from Atlanta, the atmosphere is widely different. Where Atlanta is known for traffic jams and bustling life, Ackworth is slower paced. It's a small town with a population of about 22,000 people. It has a historic district with a replica of an old-timey railroad depot and a specialty store dedicated entirely to pinball machines. That's my kind of store. Oh my God, amazing. And it's known as the city of lakes and is famous for its beautiful national and state parks. And our first degree for today's case is named Brooke. And when Brooke was around 12 years old, her family moved from Florida to Georgia. And after testing out a few different locations, her family ultimately settled in an upscale neighborhood known as Chestnut Hills in Ackworth. And this was, and is to this day, a very nice neighborhood. You're, you got to think of traditional, beautiful houses with five bedrooms, four bathrooms. I would die to live in a house that big. Red brick facades, large green lawns, and long driveways. And residents of Chestnut Hills have access to perks like a junior Olympic swimming pool, tennis courts, a pickleball court, walking trails, and two lakes where you can fish, canoe, kayak, or paddleboard. I kind of want to move there now. I want to live there. I know. It sounds amazing. So this is an upper, upper middle class neighborhood. We lived in a very nice neighborhood. Nothing really bad ever happened in it. One, but some part, but he OD'd one time, and that was like the biggest thing that ever happened. Everybody knows everybody. It's a very tight knit community. So it was like a small town feeling in a big area because we were right outside of Atlanta. This is definitely an area where you'd think you'd be safe and secure. So while living in Chestnut Hills, Brooke became very well acquainted with her neighbors across the street, the Lands family. There were the Lands parents and then the children of the house. So we're going to start with her daughter, who we're going to be calling Megan. Brooke and Megan were the same age. They attended the same school and played on the same lacrosse team. So they quickly became best friends. Megan also had three other siblings, her older sister, who we're going to call Sarah, and then her older brother, Austin, and her younger brother, Matthew. Brooke spent so much time with Megan that she grew to love the Lands family just like they were her own. Her mom is like my second mom to me. Her dad would come watch my brother's football games when he was little. 
They were like my second family. And since Brooke was so close to the Lands family, they all did pretty much everything together. They traveled to her and Megan's lacrosse tournaments together. They took annual spring break vacations together. And when Brooke's parents divorced her junior year of high school, the Lands family helped her get through that really difficult time. I was with them the night my mom and dad got divorced or told us we were getting separated. I like sobbed and just ran up to their house and just cried. And her mom was like, it's okay. And like comforted me. Following her parents' divorce, Brooke was at the Lands house even more. And Brooke got to know Megan and her siblings incredibly well. They didn't struggle financially. I mean, the mom drove her and drove her. They all got brand new cars whenever they started to drive. Hey, so there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of success. If you've got money, why wouldn't you spend it? And the Lands family definitely loved each other. Megan's two brothers, Austin and Matthew, were especially close. Austin was born in 1995, and Matthew was born in 1999, so they were only four years apart. Not much information is available about the details of their childhood, but you have to imagine that Austin was the wise older brother who taught little Matthew about life's essentials. And the two probably bonded over their love of sports, since both brothers played football at various points in their junior high and high school careers. But even though Matthew enjoyed sports, he wasn't really this typical jock. Our first degree, Brooke, says that he was the typical dorky little brother, nerdy, but fun to be around. And Austin also wasn't your typical jock, but he wasn't nerdy like Matthew either. He was just kind of different and a little bit distant. Brooke had a tougher time getting to know him. Austin was always very quiet and, I don't know, standoffish. He was always, like, kind of awkward. Quiet was almost mysterious, like... What are you thinking? Because you never talk. Austin had a weird vibe, and it was more than just being introverted or shy. Austin's aloof nature stood out from the rest of the land's family, and not in a good way. Despite his lack of social skills, Austin thrived as a big brother. He didn't really have much else going on for him. And while most teens are busting down the door to grow up, getting out of their parents' house and becoming, you know, an adult and stretching their wings, Austin wasn't really in this headspace. He was so vastly different from the other three siblings. And like, I have a lot of siblings, and we're all different. They all played sports, and he did nothing after high school. Like, they were just so vastly different that I feel like he had to have some kind of undiagnosed mental illness. He didn't have his driver's license, and he was older than us. Like, we got our driver's license, and he never got it because he didn't really, you know, exert that much effort ever for anything. Austin just didn't have anything going on in his life. Regardless of whether or not Austin was ready for the future, it was coming anyways. In 2012, he graduated from high school, but didn't go to a college or a trade school. Five years later in 2017, Brooke and Megan, who were still close friends, graduated high school. And Megan moved to Florida to attend college. And in a lucky coincidence, Brooke also moved to Florida, where she attended the University of South Florida to become a teacher. By 2021, Brooke and Megan had graduated college and were starting the next chapters of their lives. Brooke's family, by this point, had moved out of Chestnut Hills, but Brooke still kept in touch with her friends from the area. So when out of nowhere, an old friend sent Brooke a text message about Austin Lanz's involvement in a shocking murder-suicide, her mind and heart was understandably racing. When I found out about Austin, I was at work and I got a text from one of my other friends. She was like, did you hear about Austin? And the first thing that popped in my head is either like he OD'd or he killed somebody. And I don't know why, but that's like the first thing I thought of. 
I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. On August 3rd, 2021, Brooke received a shocking text message. Her best friend's older brother, Austin Lands, was plastered on national headlines everywhere. What the hell could be going on? Just a few days before, Austin had moved from his childhood home in Chestnut Hills to Virginia to work for his dad in construction. And to clarify, his dad hadn't moved to Virginia full time. According to Brooke, Austin's dad regularly spent time between the DC area and Georgia for work purposes. And as it so happens, Austin's dad's place in Virginia is a quick 30-minute drive from Arlington, Virginia. And you might recognize Arlington as the home of the U.S. Department of Defense's central office, otherwise known as the Pentagon. So if you haven't been to the Pentagon, we're going to paint you a quick picture. So the Pentagon is a huge building. It's actually the largest office building in the United States. It has 17.5 miles of hallways, 7,700 windows, and 67 acres of parking. I actually had no idea it was that big. Huge. From the outside of the Pentagon, the White House is visible across the Potomac River. And of course, it's known for its iconic five-sided pentagon shape. 
and just under 30,000 people work there, and a lot of them are armed officers. And since it's a U.S. military headquarters, it's obviously a high-security place. I'm pretty sure their official motto is, fuck around and find out. So what does quiet, Georgia-grown Austin lands have to do with the Pentagon exactly? Well, the answer should have been absolutely nothing. But unfortunately, the people who work in the Pentagon will never forget him. And that's because on Tuesday, August 3rd of 2021, the now 27-year-old Austin William Lands took a Metro bus ride to Arlington, Virginia. Just after 10.30 in the morning, he got off the bus at the Pentagon Transit Center, steps away from the actual Pentagon building. And then he did the unthinkable. When he was standing on the bus station platform without warning or anything provoking him, Austin ambushed and stabbed 37-year-old police officer George Gonzalez. And a struggle ensued between them. And Austin grabbed Gonzalez's service weapon, and then he shot him at least three times. Nearby police heard these gunshots, and one yelled, Shooter! But it was too late. Officer Gonzalez was dead. Then, using the gun he maneuvered from Gonzalez, Austin shot himself, and he died immediately. Journalist Dave Statter was nearby when he heard the gunshots, and he captured the aftermath of the incident on video. In the recording, you can see Gonzalez's body lying prone on the sidewalk. More than 10 uniformed officers swarm the scene, and the sirens of emergency vehicles wail in the background. Austin is out of frame, but officers are standing over him with guns drawn. When they eventually realize that the violence has passed, officers place a white sheet across Gonzalez's body. Other police officers began searching Austin, presumably for additional weapons or identification. Following this burst of violence, the Pentagon was on lockdown for approximately 80 minutes until law enforcement announced that the building was safe. And initially, like, nobody knew what was going on. Pentagon officials wouldn't identify the shooter's motive, the victim's identity, or deny that it might have been an act of domestic terrorism, so I'm sure everybody's minds are going all over the place. All they would say is that there was no ongoing threat. And keep in mind, this has been less than a year since the U.S. Capitol riots on January 6th of 2021. So Pentagon officials and everybody in the D.C. area are really on high alert for terrorism-related attacks. And more information was released later that day. A Pentagon spokesperson relayed that Officer George Gonzalez had been killed in the line of duty, that it was a horrible tragedy. Family and friends described Gonzalez as a diehard Yankees fan, which makes sense since he was a New York native. And as an Army veteran of eight years, he had served in Iraq, where he received several medals. He'd been a police officer with the Pentagon Forest Protection Agency for three years and was doing really well. In 2020, after two promotions, he'd already attained the rank of senior officer. Gonzalez prided himself on being one of the good guys and helping others wherever he could. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin publicly expressed his condolences for Gonzalez, and the Pentagon's flags flew at half-mast in recognition of his untimely death. And the same day he was killed, hundreds of law enforcement officers, including Secret Service members, gathered in a procession to honor the fallen officer. The nation was in a frenzy. The Pentagon was supposed to be a symbol for freedom and safety, so an unexplained murder-suicide on its doorstep was breaking news. The Washington Post interviewed D.C. area residents about their reactions to the shooting, and some people were concerned that the shooting was a terrorist attack or gang violence. Many described how scared they felt, especially since the Pentagon seemed secure with so many military personnel. Ultimately, people wanted answers. Understandably, because so many questions still remained. How could Austin do this? Why would he do this? Did he know Officer Gonzalez? 
Did Austin plan this attack on his own or with others? So what the hell was going on? So I promise if you think you know the answer to any of these questions, you're probably wrong. There's so much about this story and about this case that will shock you and surprise you. So let's get on with it, shall we? You know the drill. We got to go back. After Austin graduated high school in May of 2012, nothing seemed to be going his way. In October of that same year, he attempted to join the Marines. But less than one month after enlisting, AP News reported that Austin was administratively separated from the U.S. military. And we're not really clear on what that means, as the reasons for Austin's dismissal are not public knowledge, but the U.S. Marine Corps confirmed that Austin never earned the title of Marine. Our first-degree Brooke remembered the situation being related to Austin's health, but she wasn't sure of the details. She tried to go into the military, but he got discharged because, I think, of his vision or his blood pressure. I think that he got—I know he got, like, sentenced to psychology and stuff. So for years following his failed attempt at joining the military, Austin lived an unremarkable life. He worked for his dad in construction sometimes, as well as having a few other jobs here and there. In his mid-20s, Austin still lived in his parents' home in Chestnut Hills. This probably wasn't the life that Austin had dreamed of, but it was fine. Free rent in the comfort of a good family. Nothing was going off the rails or anything. But in the summer of 2019, everything changed when a young couple moved into Austin's neighborhood. Philip Brent and Eliza Wells were young, in love, and preparing for the rest of their lives together. The couple was in their early 20s and newly engaged. They had just moved into a half-million-dollar house that had been in Philip's family for many years. So located in the swanky Chestnut Hills subdivision, it was in spitting distance of the Lands House, which, as you know, is exactly where Austin still lived. The two houses were on different streets, but they shared a back fence, so you could see one house from the other's backyard. And at first, everything was completely normal for Philip and Eliza. But just a few months after they'd moved in, Philip found something really strange in their mailbox. It was a folded piece of computer paper with a highly sexual image printed on it and something scrawled in Sharpie on the back. And at the time, Philip didn't really think anything of it, and he was unconcerned. He threw the paper away, hardly even glancing at it. He just figured it was probably a neighborhood kid pulling a stupid prank. Only it wasn't, because the sexual photos kept appearing and they were consistent. Always in Philip and Eliza's mailbox, always sexually inappropriate images. Police reports would later describe the images as hardcore pornography. Obviously, that's a super creepy thing to be happening at your home. And you can tell the weirdo, whoever was doing it, was feeling more and more emboldened. Because after a few months, the phantom mailbox fairy started leaving items, too. In May of 2020, Philip and Eliza received an especially graphic image of a woman in a tiara. And with the picture, there was a children's plastic tiara also in the mailbox with this picture. It insinuated, perhaps, that someone, maybe Eliza, should wear the tiara and perhaps act like the explicit photo suggested. So Eliza later told the Washington Post that the combination was highly disturbing to her. Needless to say, Philip and Eliza were worried. Clearly, they had some sort of stalker, and clearly the stalker seemed to be escalating. So who was doing this? When would it stop? And exactly how much would it escalate? (laughs) 
Stalking seems like an anomaly, but if you're a regular true crime consumer, you probably realize that it happens more than one might think. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, about 3.4 million people are victims of stalking every single year. And for perspective, that's the same number of people in the entire state of Utah. And 3.4 million victims is probably on the low side, since experts estimate that one-third of stalking victims don't report their stalker. Unreported stalking happens for a number of reasons, but the primary reason is that victims don't feel like the stalking is really that much of a big deal. So take Philip and Eliza's case. A kid keeps leaving dirty photos in their mailbox. You know, who cares, really? They're probably thinking there's not really a direct threat. So what's the big deal? Is this actually stalking? Right. And people are always afraid to be alarmists. They're afraid to go to the police only to be scoffed at because the situation hasn't become dangerous, or at least dangerous enough, at least not yet. So the U.S. Department of Justice reported that another reason victims don't report their stalkers is because they feel like the police can't, won't, or will refuse to do anything to help. And the moral of the story is this. Many people don't report stalking, but Philip and Eliza had. They'd had enough of this harassment, especially with that menacing Tierra. So the couple put aside their worries and took matters into their own hands, and they contacted law enforcement. But their deepest fears were confirmed when the police told them that there was nothing that could be done. Eliza told the Washington Post that the officers just recommended that the couple install security cameras and they shrugged the whole situation off. This must be so frustrating. Very. And Eliza and Philip, they did install cameras, but still, this is like so DIY and how safe can you really feel by doing that? And with no help from local authorities, Philip and Eliza's stalker continued leaving them on wanted images and gifts. Philip and Eliza didn't know what to do next. If the police won't help, who will? But in July of 2020, the couple gained some new valuable insight and new information. What they learned was the identity of their stalker. Philip woke up one morning to discover something odd, an apple juice bottle with a cigarette inside of it, and it was propped against their garage door. Someone had obviously been on their property, so Philip spent hours watching security camera footage to find out who it was. And it's then he discovered that Austin Lands, his backyard neighbor, had visited his house in the dead of night and slipped something into their mailbox. Then Austin meticulously placed this juice box, this apple juice bottle, against their garage. It was ominous to watch. This wasn't a carelessly tossed piece of trash. Austin did this deliberately and was leaving a calling card of sorts. And the whole thing is really terrifying. And Philip told the Washington Post that he and Eliza weren't surprised that the stalker was Austin. Actually, they kind of knew it was him. And that's because they saw Austin hanging around a lot. And due to the layout of the neighborhood, Philip and Eliza drove by the land's house often, and they walked past it during their evening strolls. Every single time that they passed the land's house, Austin was always outside smoking a cigarette. He would give them the most unsettling looks, and sometimes he waved at them. Seems so creepy. Yeah. And Philip and Eliza told the Washington Post reporters that they really did fear Austin, but were also concerned for his mental health. Right. And after the bizarre apple juice bottle incident, Philip and Eliza called the police again, this time with incriminating footage. 
And the authorities spoke with Austin's parents, who were disturbed by the events and promised to get Austin therapy, according to the Washington Post. Keep in mind, Austin was a grown man in 2020. He was 27 years old. So this whole situation had to be embarrassing and confusing for his parents. And nobody expected this dangerous behavior from Austin. He wasn't creepy, like, in a stalking people way. Growing up, he was just kind of like awkward to be around like he would just keep to himself and he was very tall so he'd always just be like hunched over in sweatshirt like playing a video game like he was just always in his room playing video games just kind of like moping around when the police went to austin's house to discuss the crime eliza walked to where austin his parents and the officers were gathered outside Austin's parents apologized profusely to her, and the police pressured Austin, who was disengaged and completely slumped in a chair, to apologize to Eliza, but we don't really know if he did or not. When police asked Austin why he would harass Eliza, a woman that he'd never even met before, he said, well, I mean, I can see her through her bathroom window. And this is fucking terrifying, and Eliza freaked the fuck out because that's it's just so scary. And it's not an invitation. If you can accidentally see in someone's home, this is not an inv- a sexual invitation to peepers. Like, no. because someone's in their home and you catch a glimpse of them, that's not like a green light to pursue them. Or to just keep fucking looking. Yeah, it's just so backwards. So from that point on, Eliza always kept her bathroom window blinds closed and was reminded of Austin's peeping Tom behaviors each time that she used the bathroom. Right. And although Philip was also a victim of Austin's stalking, it appeared Austin's main obsession and fixation was Eliza. Austin's fascination with her seemed out of the blue to her first degree Brooke because he had never shown any interest in pursuing any sort of romantic relationship with any girl or woman. Yeah, because I've never even seen him have a girlfriend, and I've known knew them for six years being neighbors over at their house all the time, and then four years of college, I, like, still kept in contact, and he never had a girlfriend once that whole time that we ever knew about. He never, like, talked about wanting a relationship or anything, so it's shocking that he'd be, like, obsessed over a person. In a tight-knit community like Chestnut Hills, it's no surprise that word of Austin's stalking got out. Rumors ran wild, especially on the neighborhood Facebook page. People suspected that Eliza had somehow led Austin on romantically, but no documented evidence has supported that theory at all, so that's really unfair to Eliza. And it's most likely that Austin fabricated Eliza's interest entirely on his own to justify his own creepy behavior. Which is so gross that uh, people are jumping to the conclusion that she must have done something. Like, she must have let him on. Of course, right? It's always that she's provoking him or whatever. Yeah, and I I get that people are always searching for an explanation when somebody who's never been violent suddenly does something like this. Like, it's so out of the blue that you try to find a reason for why this happened. But sometimes it's just because he's a creep not because she's done anything to entice him or lead him on. Right. So the week after they discovered the stalker was Austin, Eliza went to the Cobb County Court to get a restraining order against him. But the Washington Post reported that the court official told Eliza that there wasn't a sufficient pattern of behavior to warrant one, which is fucking crazy because there is a very clear behavior. (laughs) And super crazy because they share a back fence. Like, this isn't a guy who she can avoid, really. You know, this person is 
in spitting distance, I believe we said, right? So, well, yeah, he can walk right into their yard. It's really, it's really scary. There's like no protection at all. Right. And again, like to say that there's no sufficient pattern of behavior to warrant a restraining order, it's odd because we're talking pornographic images. We're talking trespassing on their property late at night, leaving items in their mailbox. This seems like a sufficient pattern to us. Meanwhile, the pornographic images continued appearing in Philip and Eliza's mailbox. And this is despite they went to confront him already, you know, like he's obviously not afraid of them. And Austin continued to do stranger and stranger things still. He was not rattled by the threat of, you know, criminal charges or anything like that. And he wasn't rattled by the fact that Eliza and Philip would absolutely know it was him. On April 18th, 2021, Philip was in bed at around midnight and his security system alerted him that somebody was at the house. And it's like this creepy, bad joke. It's like, knock, knock, who's there? You guessed it. Of course, it's Austin. And he was taping a large sign to Philip's front door. On one side of the sign read, I'm done wondering for real. And the other side says, what is the point of that? And of course, at this, Philip called the police immediately. And of course, the police did practically nothing. They gave Austin a trespass warning and said that he would be arrested if he violated it. And Austin had been on their property frequently since that first pornographic image in 2019. So it's mind-blowing that the police hadn't intervened more significantly. So as you can imagine, Philip was fed up with the lack of support from law enforcement. And unnerved by Austin's brazenness, Philip went to go live with his sister. Eliza was also staying somewhere else. Like, they were so freaked out they couldn't even be there. And it's lucky that they were staying elsewhere. Because one week later, Austin crossed yet another line. On the morning of April 24th, 2021, Philip awoke to learn that somebody had broken into his home in Chestnut Hills. When Philip checked the home surveillance cameras, he saw a masked man smashing through his back door with a sledgehammer. I can't imagine viewing this. That is the most terrifying thing to imagine. It's like out of the purge. It's fucking scary. Sledgehammer with a mask. I would. Oh, my gosh. So he was also armed with a crowbar and, according to Philip, a gun. So with weapons in hand, the intruder systematically walked through every room in the house, turning on every light as if searching for somebody to harm. After 13 minutes, the intruder exited the house and pulled off his mask. Philip already knew who it would be. 27-year-old Austin Lance. I am so glad they had the intuition to not stay there anymore because the police don't think this is very serious, right? And they are like, okay, we're so scared of him. We're so sure of this. We can't stay here. We can't live in our house. And look what happened. They were right. I know. I can't, I just, I can't imagine being in their position and also feeling so helpless. It's like, hello, police. Hello, police. Hello. Do you see this? If we were here, he would have fucking killed them. Yes, he would have. Yeah. Come on. It's terrifying. And who knows what could have happened had the police taken this seriously, right? So the police ultimately did respond to Philip's call about this break-in with a sledgehammer. And when police went to the land's house, they found Austin outside of his house smoking a cigarette like he always was. So finally, this time, the police arrested him for trespassing and for burglary. During the arrest, Austin argued with the charges. He said, but I didn't take anything. That's why it's not burglary. Okay. Austin was not well. And he claimed that he had seen police planes surveilling his neighborhood and that law enforcement had been tracking his phone. None of that was true, but he was experiencing, you know, paranoia and 
seem to be having delusions as well. So clearly he's grappling with mental health struggles here. Regardless of the driving horse behind all these behaviors, it seemed that Austin wasn't done causing trouble. While going through the jail's intake process, Austin randomly assaulted two Cobb County Sheriff's deputies. One officer's thumb was dislocated and the other suffered from a torn ACL. And as Austin wrestled the multiple officers trying to detain him, he yelled that the officers were gay for ganging up on him. Like, child. He requested that the officers remove his restraints so he could have the chance to fight each one of them one-on-one. Like, this is getting crazy. Really crazy. And on the day Eliza saw Austin in court for these break-in charges, she wrote a chilling account of his behaviors on Facebook. According to 11 Alive News, her post said, Sexual harassment, aggravated stalking, looking into the eyes of the person who's made you feel unsafe in your own home for the past six months, looking at the person who makes you close all your blinds and lock all your doors and jump at any sound you hear outside, looking at him as he says he watches you through your windows, imagining that by having my own blinds and curtains open, I was inviting him to harass me, to stalk me. This was my reality today. It's uncomfortable. It's disturbing. And it's not a thing people usually talk about. And you would think, given the ongoing stalking, the break-in, and the attack on two police officers, Austin would be held without bail after being arrested, but you'd be wrong. On May 12th, Judge Michael McLaughlin of the Cobb County Magistrate actually lowered Austin's bond from 45 grand to 30 grand. And all he asked was that Austin undergo a substance abuse and mental health evaluation within 30 days of his release. He also ordered Austin to find a job and avoid, in quotes, owning guns. Like, what? When asked later, the judge said that he couldn't share why he made the decision of the bond due to standards of judicial ethics. But Philip and Eliza, who attended the hearing, said that the judge went easy on Austin because he didn't have a criminal record. Understandably, Philip and Eliza were frustrated because Austin's pattern of violence continued to go unchecked. Right, it did, and he only seemed to be escalating. Then on July 18th, 2021, Austin's bond was paid, and he was once again a free man. The next day, the judge granted a bond modification that allowed Austin to move to Virginia to work for his dad, as long as he agreed to get mental health evaluation within 30 days. And I can kind of see why that seems like a good idea. Let this guy go to Virginia, get this guy out of the area, out of his routine, and maybe he will break this fixation that he has on his neighbors. Maybe Austin would get it together and figure all of it out. But that's not what happened, because less than three weeks later on August 3rd, we've already told you what Austin did. Austin murdered Officer George Gonzalez in Arlington, Virginia, before taking his own life. Austin hadn't yet received a mental health evaluation like he was ordered to, but he was still within his court-ordered 30-day deadline. Philip and Eliza were disappointed with the Cobb County court system's decisions regarding Austin's case. Philip told AP News that he never felt that their harassment claims were taken seriously, especially since the police waited so long to arrest Austin and Eliza was never granted that restraining order. Not that this piece of paper can really save anybody from someone dead set on hurting them, but like it would have been nice. Better than nothing. Better than nothing. And when Eliza spoke with AP News, she wondered how Austin's life could have been different if he had received the mental health resources he so desperately needed rather than being released on bail and allowed to travel out of state. So understandably, with the news of what Austin had done, his family was in shock And in mourning, they were grief-stricken, and they had no idea what Austin's motives could have been. They had tried to help Austin. The Lands family released a statement apologizing to Officer George Gonzalez's family, saying that they were sorry and that they were heartbroken. 
In this statement, the family attributed Austin's actions to undiagnosed mental illness. They explained that despite numerous hospital visits, Austin had never received the appropriate care or treatment he needed to be mentally healthy. And this is such a nightmare situation for the Lance family. It is not their responsibility to explain Austin's horrific actions. Brooke theorizes that Austin was so distressed about facing charges for breaking into Philip and Eliza's home that he just broke under the pressure and resorted to a death by fire suicide. I think he was like, okay, well, I can just, I know I'm going to die if I stab somebody where they all have guns. So I think he did it as like a suicide attempt with more attention to it. After everything happened, Brooke reached out to Megan like any good friend would, but it was hard. What could you even say? It's a miserable, painful situation. We have never talked about it since I've checked in on her because that has to be horrible to go through and she didn't do that. And she's nothing like that. And it was always kind of awkward to ask her about, but she didn't talk to anybody about it. But things were about to get a lot more painful and confusing for the Lance family. In fact, you've only heard about half of this story so far. And Brooke was about to get another shocking text about yet another member of the Lance family. And it was worse than anyone could have imagined. It turned out that Austin's best friend and younger brother, Matt, was now on the run and wanted by the police. Why? What happened now? What did Matt do? And then Matthew happened a couple months later. So I know I was at home and my mom texted me, did you hear what happened? Because our Facebook group, me and my mom were both still in it from the old neighborhood. And it was like the biggest thread. There's cops, they died. And I was terrified. I didn't expect Matthew to ever do that. So it just like shook me to my core. On Thursday, November 18th of 2021, police responded to a call at around 9.30 in the morning from the same Chestnut Hills neighborhood where the Lands family resided. Police entered the house directly behind the Lands family home, and this was the one where Philip and Eliza had lived. Authorities discovered two victims, a man and a woman, who had been shot and killed. Initially, the police had no leads for this horrific double homicide. Investigators suspected that the killer was probably still in the area, but after searching the house for 12 hours, they didn't have much to go on. But the people who lived in Chestnut Hills were posting wildly in the community Facebook groups. They'd already suspected the killer was Austin's brother, Matthew Lands. My mom texted me and I was texting a few friends from lacrosse or just high school that lived in that neighborhood. And like, I heard that that happened and I didn't know who it was. Like everybody assumed it was Matthew. In the Facebook group, it was Matthew. My mom was like, it was probably Matthew. And Matthew was nowhere to be found. So the entire community, including Brooke, was terrified. I was just like, <gasps> and waiting for them to catch him. I was almost went to my mom's house because I was, I know, knew nothing would happen to me, but I was like, well, I didn't expect this. So like, what else should I not expect? The next day, the police responded to a call reporting multiple break-ins in a residential area of Sandy Springs, Georgia, which was 25 miles away from Chestnut Hills. A person's doorbell camera caught none other than Matthew, dressed in camouflage, breaking into homes at around 8 a.m. 
Matthew was going into garages to check to see if internal doors were locked. And when Matthew finally found a house that was unlocked, he went inside, much to the shock of the house's residents, who were an old lady and her adult son. Both the woman and her son were sleeping upstairs, but Matthew's intrusion woke them up, and they confronted him in the kitchen. Matthew wouldn't listen to anything these two residents said and appeared out of his mind. Perplexed and frightened, the residents called the police and waited for them on the front porch. They didn't know whether or not Matthew was armed. Police body cam footage showed what happened next. Police walk up to the driveway to a blue two-story house, and a black dog runs to greet the officer, who says a quick hello, and it's kind of cute when you watch it. The residents on the porch confirm to the officer that they don't know who Matthew is. The woman explains that she told Matthew not to go upstairs, but he did anyway. When police entered the home, they found that Matthew is still upstairs, and he was hiding behind a wall at the top of the staircase. Matthew refused to come down the stairs, claiming that this was his house. Police remained at the foot of the stairs, unwilling to walk into a dangerous situation where they couldn't see whether or not Matthew was armed. So one officer handled the negotiations with Matthew, trying to coax him out of hiding, trying to get him to come downstairs. And he reassured Matthew that he's in the wrong house, but he'll happily walk him to the right one. The officer's tone was incredibly calm and collected, kind and empathetic even. At this point, the police didn't know that Matthew was wanted for a double homicide. They didn't know any of that. They just thought this was a guy who was confused in the wrong house, maybe suffering from a mental health issue, maybe drunk. They really didn't know, but they did not think he was a murderer. And after five minutes of discussion, Matthew came downstairs, and this is just when everything goes completely wrong. Suddenly, Matthew pulled out a long hunting knife and began stabbing the same officer who had been speaking to him so kindly. The two men fell to the floor, and the other officers scrambled to try to help the situation. To stop the attack, officers tased Matthew, but he was unaffected, so they used pepper balls. That also didn't work, and that is when a backup officer shot Matthew. Matthew had stabbed the negotiating officer six times in the chest and in the head. That is so scary. And the injured officer was dragged out of the home and rushed to a local hospital. Matthew, who was hit with at least one bullet, was also taken to the hospital, and he was expected to survive, and he did. After his release from the hospital, Matthew was immediately booked into jail. The officer that Matthew stabbed was in stable condition when he arrived at the hospital and made a full recovery within a few months. Police later confirmed that his wounds were mere millimeters away from his brainstem and jugular vein, and it is pure luck that Matthew didn't kill this officer, and thank God he didn't. While Matthew was in custody, investigators quickly put two and two together. Not only had Matthew terrorized the Sandy Springs community with these home invasions and brutally attacked a police officer, he was also the suspected killer of the double homicide one county over. Once more, we are left with so many questions. And this is why I said you probably didn't expect this turn of events, but here we are. How could now the second Lands brother also be accused of committing such horrible crimes. Why would Matthew do something like this? Did he blame this couple who lived in the house next door to his family home for his brother's suicide? We don't know. To answer all of these questions and more, you know the drill. We got to go back. Yes, again. Matthew Scott Lands was born on October 19th of 1999. He was close with his brother Austin, but their personalities weren't similar. Like, they weren't similar at all. Where Austin was a loner, Matt liked being with people. 
Austin couldn't figure his life out, but Matthew always knew what was next. Matthew's life had focus and it had direction in a way that Austin's just never did. Matthew was just more motivated. He had a girlfriend most of high school, went to UGA, was in a fraternity. Like you just don't picture it from people that have so much going on in their life. And Austin just didn't have anything going on in his life. Matthew seemed to have a fairly normal college experience. Brooks said that he lost his scholarship for a semester and had to live at home, but that's not concerning. That's kind of normal. College is hard for most of us, and there's no shame in struggling. But we did find something weird about Matthew's college experience. So Matthew didn't have a criminal record prior to his arrest for the burglaries, the police stabbing, and the double homicide, which is accurate. But our research indicated that he was awaiting a court date for a potential felony charge. According to court documents on October 14th of 2019, Matthew brought a Coben knife with a 5.5-inch blade to the Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity. And this type of weapon is explicitly banned on the University of Georgia's campus. Right. And as a result, Matthew was charged with a felony, and his bond was set for $3,000. His family must have paid it, since Matthew wasn't in jail for any notable period of time. Matthew's court date was rescheduled multiple times, so he actually hadn't been sentenced for this crime yet. And the details of this situation aren't public, so we're not sure if this was a simple misunderstanding or it was a fight gone wrong or what. We don't know. We know Matthew was part of a fraternity, but we're unsure which one it was. But, like, maybe he was showing off a cool knife to his brothers. Maybe he threatened somebody with it. I don't know. Ultimately, somebody felt uncomfortable with the situation because Matthew was reported to authorities. And if nothing else, this situation is just kind of strange. Right. And then we jump to November of 2021. Matthew's visiting his parents' home in Chestnut Hills. His best friend and brother, Austin, had taken his own life only a few months earlier. Matthew missed his brother dearly. He was experiencing immense emotional turmoil on the heels of this loss. And maybe Matthew thought this entire situation was the fault of this couple who lived behind the house, Philip and Eliza. Especially Eliza, who was the focus of his brother's fixation and obsession. I think they were, like, very close with each other, and they were, like, best friends. And I think he must have, like, been super upset about Austin, and Austin probably told him his side and maybe sounded like it wasn't his fault. And I think Matthew got super pissed off and went over there and did it out of revenge. So it seems that on November 18th of 2021, Matthew snapped. He broke into the home behind his house, the home inhabited by Eliza and Philip, or so he thought. Matthew assumed that the same couple who Austin had stalked were still the occupants of this house, except they weren't. In reality, the couple who now lived in the house had absolutely nothing to do with this. And Matthew shot them each multiple times and they died instantly. It's such a tragedy. It's so shocking and sad. It's so, it's, it's, it's horrible. So when he was done, Matthew knew authorities would be after him. So he left the area heading to Sandy Springs, which was a 30 minute drive away. And he actually might have walked there because he didn't begin burglarizing homes until 24 hours later, but we are not sure on the details. Receiving concerned calls from neighbors, the police arrived to the double homicide scene in Chestnut Hills, and they were shocked to not only find this murdered couple, but also a two-year-old little boy who was alive and unharmed. It was apparent that the toddler had been wandering the house alone, oh my gosh, since the death of his parents the night before. 
And like we said, Philip Brent and Eliza Wells were no longer living together behind the land's home. They had actually ended their engagement over a year prior to everything that happened. Eliza moved out in October of 2020, and Philip had sold the house to another young couple in late August of 2021. And that couple was Justin and Amber Hicks. They were both 31 years old, they were newly married, and they were proud parents of their baby boy. And Matthew had never met Justin nor Amber. Justin and Amber never asked to be part of this. They had no idea of the baggage that would come from purchasing this seemingly nice house in this beautiful neighborhood. They were just trying to raise their little family in peace. For six years, Justin had been a firefighter with the Cherokee Fire and Emergency Services. He was a first responder. His boss described him as highly motivated and energetic. Amber was an audiologist assistant who specialized in working with senior citizens. She'd recently earned her bachelor's degree in sociology from Spelman College in Atlanta the previous May. This was the first home the couple had purchased together. They're a good couple who work with seniors and rescue people and put out fires. It's, It's so disgusting that their lives were taken like this. Friends of the Hicks family said that Justin and Amber were childhood sweethearts growing up just down the street from each other. They'd gone to a high school near Chestnut Hills, and a lot of the community already knew who they were. A neighbor told Eleven Alive News that the couple was very nice and very sweet, and Amber's cousin told CBS 46 that everybody loved the young and vibrant couple. So looking at the circumstances of this senseless double murder, the police deduced rather quickly that two things were at play here. First, this murder was motivated by revenge. Matthew blamed Liza and Philip for his brother Austin's decline and the murder Austin committed and taking his own life. And the second thing at play, obviously, is this case of mistaken identity. Matthew thought Philip and Eliza still lived in that house. It's sickening, it's tragic, and it's heart-wrenching. This string of circumstances that led to Amber and Justin's lives being stolen, it never should have happened. None of this should have ever happened. And after Matthew was arrested in Sandy Springs, information was slowly made public. And when Brooke heard the details, she couldn't recognize the person that Matthew had become. I was just like, he didn't even look like the same person I had remembered growing up with. He was literally the dorky little brother that was like riding bikes, had the awkward friend that he was always playing with. Like I couldn't even had ever guessed that he would do that. The community response to Matthew's killing spree was a hotbed of emotions. A GoFundMe campaign raised just under $70,000 for Justin and Amber Hicks' two-year-old son, and organizations coordinated several other donation drives to help with the toddler's expenses. But despite having their family torn apart, the Lands family did not receive the same sympathy. They were forced to move out of the neighborhood after what happened with Matthew. And I know after what happened to Austin, they they got a lot of hate towards them, and the mom already started to want to like move out of that neighborhood. Facebook was an especially brutal battleground, and angry community members targeted the Lands family in Facebook groups and beyond. I know when all that happened, like once he got arrested, they like shut down all comments on that post and said not to add any new posts. I'm not in the Facebook group anymore because it's just kind of hard to see all the attacking, and so I left it. I was like, okay, I don't need to, I don't live in there anymore. Just don't need to read it. Um, So I know like when it happened, they had one main thread people were allowed to comment on and then they shut it after. But at first when it happened, there was like 10 posts in 30 minutes. So really 
Austin was a 27-year-old man and Matthew was four years younger, so he was 23. It's like, these aren't kids. No. Um, I don't think people should punish families of of perpetrators. Uh, it's just, they're often just as shocked to find out that their loved one is a monster. I mean, they're victims. So they in deserve the compassion. Yeah, they're victims in the situation as well. It's really, it's really fucking sad and so messed up. And I think that everybody kind of forgets about the family of a perpetrator in this situation. So Brooke did speak to Megan and her mom and she let them know that she was there to support them. I did talk to her and she was just like not full conversations. We just texted and she was just like, yeah, it's hard. We're struggling. And I've texted her mom and said like, I'm there if they need anything. And she was like, thank you. It means a lot. Cause that has to be hard to lose. I mean, basically two of your kids in two months. And she was like a second mom to me. As for Matthew, in February of 2022, a grand jury indicted him with 13 felony crimes for the deaths of Justin and Amber Hicks. The charges included home invasion, assault, and murder. And the indictment revealed that Matthew removed shell casing from the Hicks home to cover his tracks. So he was also charged with tampering with evidence. Also, since Matthew was responsible for leaving the Hicks' two-year-old son unsupervised for 12 hours, he was also charged with cruelty to children. Matthew faces additional charges for his burglaries and the assault of the police officer in Sandy Springs. So currently, his next court date is scheduled for October 4th of 2022. There, he will probably enter his plea. Guilty, not guilty, or no contest. And Brooke is left with complicated emotions regarding the Lands brothers. She spent her most formative years growing up right alongside of them, and she was their friend, almost their sister. This experience is devastating for her, and she never imagined it happening to the Lands family, let alone to the innocent couple like Justin and Amber Hicks. After Austin, I was like, dang. And then when it happened with Matthew and hearing about the two-year-old that was left upstairs by himself while his parents were dead, I just sobbed hysterically because I, I mean, I told you I'm two-year-old. He was one and a half at the time, and I was like, oh my God, that is horrible. I could not even imagine. I feel sad for the Hicks family, and I feel sad for their cousin and his mom and his sister. More people are involved than just Matthew, Austin, the original couple and the new couple. Like, it affected so many more lives than just that. I just feel sad for all of them because I couldn't imagine them being somebody in my family. Like, I always had wished I was in their family. The love we have for our families is deep and often unexplainable and unconditional. Our brothers, our sisters, our sons, our daughters, they're all an integral part of us as people. But how do we react when the unimaginable happens to them? Or worse, when they do the unimaginable to others? As Brooke said, the case of the Lands brothers affects so many. Not only will the Hicks and Gonzalez families be forever marred by the Lands brothers' actions, but so too will the rest of the Lands family. Their pain will never end. The thoughtless actions of these brothers will cause a reaction in many others for the rest of their lives. And to all of the older brothers and sisters out there, you can't forget to be mindful that your younger siblings are watching you. They're admiring you and you're influencing them, whether you realize it or want to or not.
Well, a huge thank you to Brooke for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group because we're talking true crime all of the time. Join our Patreon for a lot of fun bonus content. And stick around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. She's on vacation, so not this week, but in general. Writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, 11 Alive, The Washington Post, Dave Statter, Ancestry, Find a Grave, Sandy Springs Police Department, WBS-TV, LinkedIn, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, AP News, Find Law, Seneca Chapels, CBS 46, WUSA 9, Office for Victims of Crime, U.S. Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Defense, HUDL, NPR, and Encyclopedia Britannica. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source and court documents.